Episode 48 of the Chewing Your Boot podcast, and today we bring you former Victorian and South Australian wicketkeeper Darren Berry. Along with his playing days, he's also been coach of the Adelaide Strikers and done some coaching in the IPL, and runs his own podcast with former guest Tim Ludeman. We really enjoyed this episode, and we hope you do as well. Before we get into another episode of the podcast, we'd like to remind you that this one is proudly sponsored by Kremlin. You can use the code BENM10, all in caps, for 10% off on all your clothing needs, so make sure you get onto that. Darren, welcome to the Chew In Your Boot podcast. Thanks for joining us today. No worries, boys. Well done on what you're doing. You've had some great guests, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm delighted to join you today. That's fantastic to have you. Take us back to your younger days, and... Give us an insight into where your love for sport and specifically cricket developed from. Yeah, look, initially, um, and I don't want to bore our listeners too much, but I was born into a family with um, much older brothers and sisters. My two brothers and two sisters had already moved out of home when I was born, and my mum and dad were quite elderly parents, so there was benefits of that. And then sadly, probably later in my life, there was, you know, I lost both of them relatively young. But we were born very much a working class southeastern suburb of Melbourne called Dufton, just near Dandenong. Um, and I suppose my love of the game and probably all sports was at the end of our street. Now, you two guys are pretty young and I'm pretty old. But back in the day, you know, after school, what kids did was they went out in the street and kicked the footy or played cricket or climbed trees. And there was no uh, YouTube and Fortnite and all the rubbish that goes on today. So... All the kids in my area in Dufton, and there would have been no joke, 14 or 15 of us, there was a vacant block at the end of the street. And most nights after school, that was like our MCG. And we'd go and play footy matches or cricket matches uh, in what we called the paddock. And it's still to this day, and I'm now 50 years of age, I remember those days like they were yesterday. I played with predominantly older kids. I would have been in primary school, and most of the kids were in high school. And it was a wonderful grounding for me in the paddock at the end of my street in Dufton. And as you rose through the ranks, was there a moment that you can pinpoint that it maybe clicked in your mind that you were good enough to go on and play at a high level? Yeah, Benny, I mentioned Dufton, but my father was a builder and, and he retired. As I said, he was, I had elderly parents. We moved to country Victoria, a bit like you two, um, to a place called Wonthaggy down in South Gippsland when I was in grade five, halfway through grade five. So I was still only a young boy. And country um, Victoria was wonderful back then in the um, late 70s, early 80s. I played all sports and loved, loved sport. I played everything that was going. But probably the three that stood out were basketball. Football was my probably number one, if I was to be honest, and cricket. Um, and again, long story short for our, our listeners, cricket and football were the two that started to get me recognised uh, out of country Victoria. I had a, a very brief stint down at the St Kilda Football Club in the under-19s and I thought that was where my future would be. I was probably a bit fat and a bit slow and not quite fast enough, which was ideal for wicket-keeping. Um, and then in my teenage years, cricket probably chose me when I was selected in some stayed underage squad. So that's probably the early days how it unfolded in my in my teenage years. Reminiscent of Shane Warne there. Uh, well, similar age, similar time. And, you know, we crossed paths and obviously are great mates today. Uh, he, I was actually at St Kilda the year before he was. So I, I think I played in 86 or 87. 
testing my memory now. <laughs> I was in year 11, so I was 86 because I did my year 12 uh, in 87. And Warnie was there a bit after me. But, yeah, both have a passion for the Saints. Both of us thought we were good at footy, but the truth is we were both a bit slow. Um, it was a good mark and a good kick, and I was a little bit more in and under type of style. But at the end of the day, you know, they're all those what-if stories. And, uh, well, he went on to be the greatest cricketer of all time. And, you know, I played a significant time for Victoria. But uh, I loved my footy as a kid. Well, you made up for it. Where you made your first class debut for the Redbacks in the 89-90 season. And you had an impressive season that year, breaking a few records. How pleasing was it to start your career in such a way? was interesting, uh, Riley, to be honest, because I'd gone over to Adelaide, just finished year 12, and I was in the very first intake of the Australian Institute of Sport at the Cricket Academy, which then was based in Adelaide. Now, you guys would probably know the Centre of Excellence is in Brisbane at the Allen Border Field, but then you were based at the Adelaide Oval, and you spent 12 months there. And I was in the very first intake, and I was probably a bit younger than most. Most of the boys were 19, 20, and I was taken as a 17-year-old. Spent a year in Adelaide, I mean, at the end of the year, David Hooks was the captain of South Australia, the late David Hooks, who went on to be my coach of Victoria later. He basically said if I stayed in Adelaide, I'd have a good chance to get into the state side. Um, my mum and dad were ageing and, and quite sick, and I wanted to come home to Melbourne. But as a wicketkeeper, you've got to be in the right place at the right time. So I stayed in Adelaide, made my debut for South Australia um, in, what was that, 89-90. Had one season in Adelaide with South Australia uh, before I did return home to Melbourne um, and then embarked on a 15-year career behind the stumps for the Vicks. And after your time with South Australia, you moved to Victoria, as you mentioned. How much went into that? Was there a long process or it didn't take too much? Yeah, no, good work, boys. You've done your research. I like your efforts so far for outstanding. Uh, probably, uh, Benny, unfortunately, a bit of tragedy again in my life because my father had, had become ill. And in the off-season, most cricketers, you can either go to England to play cricket or some now, and I highly recommend it, go to Darwin. The weather's a lot better up in Darwin. And I was up in Darwin in the off-season in between my cricket academy year and playing for South Australia. And my dad was um, sadly very ill with cancer. Um, and again, long story short, um, I flew back to Melbourne and unfortunately, very quickly, my father passed. And that was a tough time. And I, I thought, well, talking to mum and things like that, I, I decided after that one year in Adelaide that really my heart was in Victoria. Number one, I wanted to be with my family. And number two, I really wanted to play with Victoria. So I, I, I took my chances. I left Adelaide where I'd secured my position to try and break into the Victorian side which, as it turned out, in 1990, seems a long time ago, that's when I did break into the Victorian side um, and stayed in there predominantly for 15 years with a couple of hiccups along the way. You played for a World Eleven in 1993 against Zimbabwe. This is a pretty big achievement. What are your memories from this game? Um, we, we were in England. Uh, I was in England playing club cricket at a club called Macclesfield Cricket Club in Cheshire. Two of the best years of my life playing league cricket over there. Made some great friends and, again, a great cricket education and probably a great life education. I just happened to be in the right place at the right time, to be honest, Riley. Um, I was over there and I'd been playing first-class cricket and they picked a, a World Eleven team and they were looking for a wicketkeeper. And most of them were already in teams and weren't available. So uh, it was sort of the older guys that had retired and some legendary names played in that game. 
Um, from memory, it was in Scarborough, I think, in, in Yorkshire. And, yeah, I got a Guernsey in that team. But there were some, some wonderful cricketers in that side. So, yeah, good, good memories a long time ago and played that game against Zimbabwe. And you continued your great form for Vicks over the years and were selected on the 1997 Ashes Tour. Unfortunately, you didn't receive a baggy green. However, it must have been still a great experience. Yeah, Benny, there's your first little hiccup. But uh, you're doing beautifully. Uh, no, don't worry. You haven't done anything wrong. You're right. 97, uh, I was called in. I was actually on my honeymoon with my wife. We were in England and uh, I'd just thrown my wicket-keeping gloves in the bottom of the suitcase just in case because Ian Healy was the number one keeper and Adam Gilchrist, who went on to be one of the greats, was the, the understudy. But Gilchrist got injured. I was in England on my honeymoon. Just happened to pack the keeping gloves. There's a lesson there for all young cricketers. Make sure you take your gear. And I got the call up in, in 97. And you're right, in essence, I never played a test match. Uh, but I did get a baggy green cap because then when you were part of the touring team, I was presented about not really any ceremony. The team manager said, here's your Australian cap. Well, that meant the, that meant the world to me because as a young boy growing up, if you'd have said I'd be on an Ashes tour and get a green baggy cap. So I did, and it takes pride of place. However, you know, the facts are Ian Healy, much as I tried, boys, to break his hand during that six weeks I was with the team to try and get an opportunity, he's pretty tough. And uh, I was the understudy for six weeks. But green baggy, pride of place, but probably a little bit missing, boys. I never had a test number put in it. We've mentioned Shane Warne, who's obviously regarded as one of the greatest cricketers of all time. But you got to keep to him while you played for the Vicks. Can you give us an insight into just how good he was and how tricky it is to keep to him? When we first started, and as I said, we're similar age. He's slightly older than me, a couple of months, I think. And, uh, you know, St Kilda, there's a lot of synergy and connection and leg spinner and wicket keeper. We struck up a friendship pretty early on and that friendship has remained. I mean, last night I stayed up and was watching the test match in England, boys. I don't know if you were. Uh, it was unbelievable. And he was commentating. We were sending messages back and forwards to each other. So, you know, we've become great mates. Um, but in the early days, he was always talented and he spun the ball sharply, but his control probably wasn't great in his early days. And then I watched him emerge into the greatest leg spin bowl that's ever played the game. And his skill, everyone knows what a champion he was, but the freakish nature of bowling leg spin, if anyone's tried it, it's the hardest skill in the game to control. And the way that he controlled his leg spin for over a decade at the top level is why he became the greatest of all time in 708 test wickets. So I'm probably, now that I'm older, at the time you don't think about it, but now that I'm old and retired, I think how lucky was I to have played in the same era as the great Shane Warne. Well, he actually regarded you as one of the best keepers he's ever played alongside. That must be pretty cold that close to your heart, having him saying that. I had to pay him a lot of money, boys, to say that, to be honest. I'm still paying off that debt. <laughs> um, but no, it is. It's probably, without having the baggy green test match, I suppose the best endorsement one could get would be from the greatest spin bowler to say. And, and look, he played with Ian Healy and Adam Gilchrist. In my opinion, Ian Healy, the best wicketkeeper that I've seen in my lifetime. Uh, in Australia, I mean. I, I like a couple of the English wicketkeepers, but Healy was the best. And then Adam Gilchrist, as a, as a wicketkeeper batsman, there's been no better. So unfortunately for me, you know, I was in a pretty ordinary, difficult time to break in. 
But whenever we played together for Victoria, um, you know, Warnie's always had nice words to say. And I suppose, you know, that's probably the greatest endorsement that I could have outside of being a test cricketer that, that Warnie always says that Darren Berry was, was right up there. And your ability with the gloves was without doubt up, up there with the greats. And this was shown in your stumping off paceman Paul Rifle. No doubt that's something you're pretty proud of. But was he as pleased, given he's a big fast bowler? Not at all, Ben. I think to this day he would like to erase that off his record. I think he's got one stumping next to his record. And he, he uh, at the time, didn't like it. I think today he didn't like it. Um, but that was probably something. And when we started this podcast, we spoke about the paddock at Dufton. And I was a young kid. And in that paddock, we mowed a cricket pitch, but we always had the back fence was like the slips cordon and all that type of stuff. No, no, I always used to get in to the taped up cricket ball and I would keep with my bare hands up to the stumps to these much bigger kids. So I think that's where that started. And probably something synonymous with my career was that I always stood up to the stumps, to the medium fast bowlers. The, the Paul Rifle stumping off David Boone was the one that gets most talked about. And I'm, I'm, I don't want to sound silly here, but Ian Harvey, who was a good friend of mine, we both grew up in Montaggy together. He was the one that I had probably the best connection with as a keeper and a wick, um, fast bowler. And in in domestic cricket, we got a lot of, you know, stump berry bold Harveys down the leg side. But they never drew as much attention, I suppose, as the Paul Rifle one because it was the Australian fast bowler, David Boone batting. It was just something that I did naturally and I felt that you could put pressure on the batsman if the wicket keeper was up there, not only to stump them, but to keep them in their crease for LBWs and change the way they played. You became captain of the Vicks. You were successful winning a Pura Cup. It must have been an honour to captain your home state. No doubt. Probably one of the biggest honours to be, to be named captain of your state. <clears throat> I'd always been guys like the fill-in or the vice-captain um, throughout my time. There was uh, Dean Jones, Simon O'Donnell, Paul Rifle, Shane Warne. There was many guys that were made captain ahead of me, and, and rightly so. I was always like the second in line and the support act. But whenever they were away playing for Australia, I would like step up and be the fill-in captain. And But I was never really made the official captain. And then David Hooks, as I mentioned, became coach of Victoria. And he sat me down, and I still remember his words. He said, um, you're the person that I believe should be captain of this state. Um, your passion for the state and your passion for the big V, uh, you've been caretaker long enough. We're going to make you outright captain. Well, that was a great vote of confidence from the coach. And it was in, as I said, at the end of my career, whilst I captained Victoria, I, I don't know, probably 50 times, probably officially as the captain, it was probably you know, a dozen times at the end of my career. And part of that um, captaincy was to also nurture a young Cameron White who'd just come into the team. And we made him one day captain and I was the shield captain. And then when I retired, Cameron took over and became, in my opinion, one of the great Victorian captains. So that was a bit of a legacy of David Hooks. And in 2002, you became a runner for the Saints in the AFL while still playing cricket. How'd this come about? Very brief uh, career this one was, boys. We won't have to talk about it too long. Uh, long story short, a friend of mine was the runner for St Kilda. who was involved in cricket and St Kilda needed a second runner. I wanted to do it to keep fit when he rung me because I was at the end of my career. I thought this would be good for fitness. 
Uh, I love the Saints. What a chance to be the runner and run out on the MCG and deliver the messages to Rewalt and Kaczynski and Milne. I did all the pre-season, uh, got fit, couple of pre-season matches. And then I did one game against North Melbourne at the MCG, round one. And the coach at the time was Grant Thomas. And I've said this before. I was involved in the media at the time. I was doing the boundary riding for Triple M in Melbourne, just at, uh, on the radio. And I, I've said this a few times, long story short, Grant Thomas wasn't happy that I was in the media and involved at the St Kilda Football Club. And there is a long-winded story around it. But basically, Tomo said, you make the choice. I said, I can do both. And he said goodbye. So my running career was cut pretty short. You mentioned the media. You've had a number of roles, work for Triple M, K Rock in Geelong, and also wrote columns for the Herald Sun. What do you enjoy about these roles in this industry so much? I suppose it keeps you in touch with the games that you love. And um, now that I'm long retired, probably the thing that I enjoy most in my life, to be honest, is commentating the AFL football. Triple M gave me the first start in Melbourne when I was still playing, as we mentioned. Um, and then when I went to Adelaide to coach South Australia, and we'll probably get to that, um, you know, I lost touch a little bit with Melbourne Triple M. I did a little bit of work in Adelaide with Adelaide Triple M, um, with Mark Rusciuto and uh, Warren Treadway, and that was a different... I loved it. It was really good. And then when we moved back to Melbourne, there was no spots on the Triple M roster, uh, and K-Rock in Geelong um, gave me that opportunity, and something I've been thankful for. I've probably been with them well, on and off for about 10 years and it's something I really love doing. But it keeps you in touch with the game um, and then a little bit of uh, radio commentary with the cricket as well in various forms. And you've been in a number of coaching roles for the Strikers, SA, as you just mentioned, and in the IPL. Where did your passion for coaching develop? Um, I, think, I think when I played the game, I... I like to think that I read the game and understood the game pretty well. And, you know, if you're captain a state side, you've probably got to have a bit of an understanding of cricket. And I always got a lot of pleasure out of helping other people improve. So it was a natural progression for me. And, you know, I became assistant coach of Victoria um, a couple of years. I started at Carlton Cricket Club, to be honest. That was my first real opportunity. I coached Carlton Cricket Club for a couple of years and I loved it. And then I became assistant coach to Greg Shippard for Victoria. And then my old mate Shane Warne was um, captain coach of Rajasthan Royals in the first year of the IPL, which was huge, a huge opportunity. He took me with him as his assistant coach. Um, we won the grand final as the major underdogs in India. And that was an unbelievable experience in my first year. Um, so sort of the passion for coaching was born in those mediums. And then at the end of the IPL, not at the end, but after three seasons, I think, in the IPL, um, South Australia interviewed me for the role and I won that role. And you know, then I had uh, five, five years or four years over there in South Australia. I stayed for five. So that's sort of been a bit of the coaching dynamic. And then Dean Jones, an old teammate, he took me as an assistant coach recently, most recently to Islamabad United in the Pakistan Super League. Had three seasons over there and we won the championship two years out of three. So maybe I'm a better assistant coach, guys, than a, than a, than a head coach. When I've been assistant coach, we've had success. And maybe that's true. Maybe I am a better assistant coach. And then now, where am I today? 50 years of age, I live on the Mornington Peninsula. And I've gone back to what I consider where I started, if you like. My first club was Buckley Ridges in Dandenong District Association. Uh, I'm not coaching there. 
Um, but Mornington Cricket Club on the Mornington Peninsula. I started last year and I went back and it's very much grassroots. It's on the hard wickets, not on the turf. And I'm seeing kids that remind me of me when I started, you know, 15, hoping one day they'd be good at cricket. So you might say I've done the full cycle, gone up to the top of the tree as close as you can go, and then now back at grassroots and, and, and love it just as much. That's fantastic. And there's, there's been talk about the state of the game, I suppose, in recent years. Are you more of a traditionalist that likes the longer format? Or do you think, obviously, T20 cricket's rose to prominence in the last probably 10 years. Do you more sit on that side of the fence? Great question. The answer is I'm a traditionalist and test cricket is the greatest test. And again, you know, as we speak recently, the test between Pakistan and England at Old Trafford over the last week has just been an amazing test match of skill. So I I definitely like that. However, there is a place for T20. It's introduced a new format and got a new passion from a lot of different people. My family is the greatest example. My wife and children have no interest in cricket. No interest at all. They love the Big Bash. They watch the Big Bash. So it's brought a whole new audience. Uh, I think the development of, of women's cricket in this country has been outstanding over the last 10 years and it's gone from strength to strength. So, and I actually, because I've coached T20, I love it. And some people won't get this, but the strategy involved in T20 game is far greater than any other format because one over can change the match. In fact, one ball can change the match. In a test, you can build up over a period and you can get behind and catch back up. In T20, if you make crucial mistakes at the wrong time, you lose the match. So I love both. I've coached in T20 and I love the strategic side of the game. But if you're asking me honestly, what do I enjoy most? Test cricket. Definitely. And post your career, you wrote a book, Keeping It Real. Was this was writing a book something you always aspired to do? And how did it come about? Good name for a podcast too, I reckon, Keeping It Real with Chuck Ludy and the big fella. So that was a lovely introduction there, Riley. Uh, I know this is a very popular podcast. So if we can get a few chewy on the boots across to Keeping It Real with Chuck Ludy and the big fella, I think I've mentioned it twice now. Uh, we've only been doing that podcast for a couple of months, so we're a bit behind you, but we've had some similar guests. Um, back to the question, though, I suppose. Um, writing the book was to... Look, why should I write a book? I never played for Australia. There's, you know, and I got, a lot of, I got a lot of shit for it. You know, a lot of people said, oh, why are you writing a book? You know, you never really played test cricket. And at the time, it was a little bit confronting and maybe a little bit embarrassing. But uh, a guy from the Melbourne Age, Martin Blake, uh, was a, he was a mate of mine. He'd covered my career and... He felt the story needed to be told as well of the ups and downs that I'd faced throughout my career and the struggles from what we've talked about, pretty humble beginnings to playing almost at the top. Um, and then, you know, the, there's a few other things with ins and outs throughout my career. So we sort of decided to give it a shot and, uh, yep, we wrote it. And it was called Keeping It Real because I, I didn't hide anything. I put out there and some of it made me unpopular. You know, at the time, I said things that happened in my eyes um, that some people didn't like that came out in print. But if you're going to write a book, don't you've got to write the, the full story and the facts and the truth. And, you know, that maybe caused a bit of controversy, but maybe a bit of controversy sold a few books as well. I, I don't know. I'm in my study at home now and I've got three copies left, one for each of my children. And 
when they're 18, I'll give them a copy. They'll probably throw it in the bin because they don't like cricket. They don't care that their dad played cricket. But that's the story of the book at the end of my career. And just on your podcast, we'll say the name again, keeping it real, give it another plug. Um, you've inter- <laughs> interviewed some huge names in the world of sport. How much of a kick do you get out of doing this? It must be a lot of fun. It has been great. And hopefully the audience, like you guys, you know, you get an insight into people and, and hopefully we're giving them a bit of an insight for the people that love cricket into, you know, my journey from, from Dufton, one thaggy, and then to, to go and play cricket all around the world. We have had some, lucky enough, I suppose, in the cricket circles that I've had some good contacts and Shane Warne and Nathan Lyon and uh, Murph Hughes, Greg Ritchie, Chad Sayers, you know, there's a whole host and I've probably forgotten one or two. And the two boys I do it with, uh, uh, Timmy Ludeman from, um, and, and Matt Stewart, both from Warnable or down that way, they've had some connection with Jonathan Brown, Mark Leishman, um, Trevor Gleeson, the coach of the Perth Wildcats. So we've probably tapped into our contacts and apologies for anyone we missed out. Had our first female guest last show, Shani Layton, the great Australian netballer and Collingwood footballer. So, look, we're going to continue. We were doing it weekly. We're going to probably soldier on now that we've done about 15, probably every every fortnight, so we can try and maintain the quality of guests. But it's not just about the big names, guys. Um, it's about someone that's got a story to tell, and that's what we hope to, to continue to cover. That's fantastic. Well, Darren, that's all we've got for you. We thank you for your time. You've obviously achieved a lot in your career and life, and we congratulate congratulate you on that and wish you the best of luck for your future uh, no worries riley and ben i enjoyed chatting with you and to all of your listeners i know you've got plenty uh, we're facing difficult times out there at the moment in this COVID 19 it's tough times so all i would say to everybody when you're really struggling ring your friends ring your family stay, stay focused stay engaged because a lot of people are doing it really tough uh, in this world at the moment and together Hopefully, you know, within three to six months, we might be at the other side. And uh, so, yeah, my regards and, and good wishes go to all of your listeners. And thanks, boys, for having me on. Definitely. Thank it's you. a great message. Thank you. That wraps us up for another episode of the podcast. Obviously, a massive thanks to Darren for his time. Great to hear about his intriguing journey in both the AFL and cricketing industries. Thanks for listening once again and stay tuned for some massive guests in the future.